This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director. Thank you so much for listening today on this first full day of fall. Yay! And let me just also say thank you for giving to support WMRA. We're actually in the final days of our fall fun drive. So if you haven't contributed yet, please do so at WMRA.org. We're counting on you. And together, we'll wrap up our More News, Less Noise drive with another big success. In the meantime, stay tuned for a report by WMRA's Marguerite Gallerini on how an animal shelter in Charlottesville is reaching out to help some dogs and cats from North Carolina after Hurricane Florence. Jesse Nadler has a look at how Virginia's craft brew industry might be fizzling out. And Christopher Clymer-Kurtz profiles one family who has brought their Aztec heritage to Harrisonburg's International Festival for years. But first, an update on an issue we've been covering for years here at WMRA, the legacy of mercury contamination in and around the South River in Waynesboro. We'll get to the latest from Christopher Clymer-Kurtz on that cleanup in a few minutes, but first, let's get a sense of the history. For more than three decades, a fish consumption advisory has been in effect on the South River and the South Fork of the Shenandoah River from Waynesboro to Front Royal. The contamination is from mercury that came from a DuPont factory in Waynesboro more than 60 years ago. Back in 2015, Carol Lofton, who is now with West Virginia Public Radio, took a look at why the advisory is still in place and what is being done to remedy the long-standing contamination. On the banks of the South River and the South Fork of the Shenandoah River, one can see signs warning, health advisory on eating fish. These fish may contain mercury in both Spanish and English. The signs are part of a monitoring program run by the Department of Environmental Quality, the Virginia Department of Health, and a DuPont-funded cleanup and monitoring initiative called the South River Science Team. The pollution dates back as early as the late 1920s, when a DuPont fabric factory produced rayon. The factory has since been sold to Invista. Mercury was used as a catalyst in the production of the fiber, a practice that was discontinued in 1950. But during those first 20 years or so, waste from the factory seeped into the soil around the plant and then into the South River, the South Fork of the Shenandoah River, and part of the Shenandoah River itself. The mercury contamination went unnoticed for 26 years until a DuPont construction team discovered mercury in the soil around the factory and notified regulation agencies of the finding. The next year, the Virginia Department of Health issued a fish consumption ban for more than 100 miles of stream bank stretching from Waynesboro to Front Royal. The ban was amended in 1980, but a fish consumption advisory remains in effect today. Little improvements have been seen in the mercury levels found in fish tissue over the last 40 years. So what's the problem with mercury? Well, mercury is what they call a conservative substance. It does not degrade over time. That was Don Kane of the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality. He said that once mercury gets into an ecosystem, it stays there because it can't be broken down like other chemicals. Now, it can be moved, so it can be transported. It can be buried and made unavailable, but if it's in the system and it's actively working itself through the system, and that's basically what we see in South River and the South Fork of the Shenandoah River, it's in the ecosystem, it's in the, um, the invertebrates, it's in the fish, it's in the sediments, it's in the floodplain soils and along the river banks. So 
it basically just gets reworked and reintroduced and redeposited and restored in the river system. Mercury likes to stick to soil particles. When soil is washed into the rivers, mercury goes with it and is carried downstream to contaminate areas far from the actual site of pollution. The stickiness of mercury makes removal of the chemical impractical, if not impossible, says Michael Liberati, project director for DuPont's corporate remediation group. So the South River science team is working on a containment, not removal strategy. The South River science team came up with the strategy of a riverbank stabilization, trying to contain the mercury rather than trying to excavate the mercury. The plans are still being designed, but their goal is to stabilize. The first two miles of riverbanks that are eroding and have high mercury and to institute a short-term and a long-term monitoring program to see if that remediation is effective. And if it is, uh, we're likely to continue that on down the river. In some cases, stabilization will just be vegetating the banks to keep them from eroding. In others, they might use engineered fabrics to keep the riverbanks in place. Liberati says the project is still being designed, but they hope to be in the field by this time next year. If the project is successful, it would mean not only healthier fish, but an overall healthier local ecosystem for everyone. For WMRA News, I'm Kara Lofton. Well, now for the latest. Uh, Last year, DuPont agreed to a $50 million settlement with the Commonwealth and the federal government. In the Justice Department's settlement statement, the purpose is to, quote, compensate the public for the natural resource injuries and losses in ecological and recreational services, and to fund projects restoring natural habitat around the South River in Waynesboro. WMRA's Christopher Clymer-Kurtz takes a look at the early stages of restoration. It's a sunny afternoon in Waynesboro's Constitution Park, just downstream from the factory where from 1929 to 1950, DuPont used mercury in manufacturing and released mercury into the South River. For years, the Environmental Protection Agency and Virginia Department of Environmental Quality have been involved in ongoing remediation of mercury contamination along the river. Oh, look at him. He was following my lure there. Today, school district database administrator Will's Kitchen is spending his lunch break catch and release fishing here. Even for the river being a little bit dirty, there's a great crawfish population. And crawfish generally will not live in water that is overly dirty. It's usually a pretty good indication that the river is not in too bad a shape. Under a nearby bridge, Karen Brookshire and a friend have brought their kids to play in the water. We don't eat anything out of it, because of the mercury. But the kids, we don't worry about kids playing in it. (laughs) It's a little gross, but it's not because of the mercury. (laughs) A bit further upstream, closer to the former DuPont factory, Waynesboro Mayor Terry Short describes a completed remediation project aimed at reducing the reintroduction of mercury into the river. This entire bank was excavated and the mercury-contaminated soil was removed, hauled off to an eligible landfill someplace near the east, and backfilled with dirt, covered with biochar, new uh, soil, and then new plantings. And so uh, the, the entire bank that you see here that stretches all the way down to the, almost, almost to the foot of the pipes, that was all replaced, this has all been replaced. 
But efforts to remove mercury from the natural environment can do only so much. According to a report from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Virginia, quote, remedial efforts are not likely to remove all mercury from the system. That's where the settlement announced last year comes into play. We're not actually providing any funds to clean up at all. We're mostly just trying to figure out what was injured and replace that injury in some way. One trustee of the settlement funds is the Commonwealth of Virginia, represented by the State Department of Environmental Quality. The other trustee is the U.S. Department of the Interior, represented by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, represented here by Ann Condon. We're trying to do land protection, habitat restoration, projects that will improve water quality and fish habitat, projects that will improve recreational fishing opportunities, and different things that will benefit migratory birds and other wildlife that were impacted. Condon said that the settlement includes a fish hatchery renovation project in Front Royal, still in the design phase, which will cost an estimated $10 million, plus approximately $42 million for natural resource restoration projects. About 75% of those restoration funds have been allocated for projects through partner organizations such as the City of Waynesboro, the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay, and Soil and Water Conservation Districts. Some include the acquisition of 2,400 acres of land, removing the invasive wavy leaf grass in Elkton in the Shenandoah National Park, and implementing best management practices for agriculture, such as fencing, to keep farm animals out of streams. The trustees plan to accept more proposals, including to benefit migratory songbirds. We don't have a ton of progress to report right now because we're really just beginning, but we're expecting a lot of movement forward in the next year or so with all these projects. The money isn't necessarily being spent on directly contaminated areas. Because there's still mercury in the system, we're focused more broadly on improving that watershed in general. So the projects are kind of scattered throughout the watershed. At Constitution Park, Mayor Short describes part of what he hopes will become a reality using settlement funds. Where we're standing here, we kind of envision a series of groves and meadows, potentially uh, water ponds, where we can attract potentially more songbirds. It'll be a really neat resource for school systems to send their children down here, learn about the remarkable sort of songbird habitat that, that Waynesboro enjoys, um, learn about the waterways, learn, learn about uh, mercury and the importance of clean water and how you know, water is life. Short knows the mercury from the nearby former DuPont factory will long outlast him. You know, it's like anything else in life. You, 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 you try to commit a little bit of improvement with the expectation and hope that long term, your community will realize a long term and lasting benefit and improvement from it. For WMRA News, I'm Christopher Clymer-Kurtz. Charlottesville was spared from the worst of Hurricane Florence, but the community is trying to do its share to help out neighbors who are less lucky. As WMRA's Marguerite Gallerini reports, Charlottesville's SPCA is helping out some four-legged friends in North Carolina. How many adoptions have we had today? Following Hurricane Florence, four employees from the Charlottesville Albemarle SPCA were sent down to New Bern, North Carolina to bring some animals back. There's no chance that these animals belong to anyone else. They were already homeless, but in a pound. This is Executive Director Angie Gunter. And the reason for bringing those animals back, and it was a total of 30, 16 dogs, 14 cats, is to make space for those that are displaced by the storm and the hope that families can be reunited with their pets. The SPCA partner 
partnered with the Best Friends Animal Society and the Humane Society of the United States. They also brought supplies donated by the Petco Foundation down to New Bern. I mean, these folks have been devastated. They're without everything. So just giving them large crates, dog food, cat food, it just really helped out the shelter there. As it stands, the mission is ongoing. Last year, when we helped with Hurricane Harvey and Irma, we took 183 animals total. But that was over a longer period of time. So we're just getting started with this. You know, it requires financial resources. It also requires community members adopting the animals that we have. So we're just truly grateful to this community for allowing us to do this life-saving work. For WMRA News, I'm Marguerite Gallerini. Let's uh, dip a little deeper into the archives now for this story from last October. During his four-year term, Governor Terry McAuliffe was a big supporter of Virginia's craft brew industry. But some in the business have begun to wonder if that sector's explosive growth has come at the expense of local players and if it's sustainable. WMRA's Jesse Nadler reports on the craft brew enterprise in Virginia. It's no secret that outgoing Governor Terry McAuliffe has an ongoing love affair with Virginia's craft brew industry. But there's nothing like enjoying a cold Virginia beer right here in the Commonwealth. That's why I even installed a kegerator at the executive mansion. A kegerator. That's when you know it's serious. So why all the brew love? It's part of his administration's push to diversify the economy by attracting businesses in new and growing fields. Craft brew spans several sectors of the economy, agriculture, tourism, manufacturing. Craft brew is good for a lot of businesses. And it's not just about the beer. Virginia has a good apple source. We're blessed with a number of orchards within close proximity of our cidery here. We source all local from within about 30 miles of the cidery. Lindsay Dorier is a vice president at Bold Rock, a five-year-old hard cidery headquartered along Route 151's Wine and Brew Corridor in Nelson County. You're more likely to purchase uh, a Bold Rock Hard Cider when you visited us and you, you understand the ethos of the brand by actually being in the, uh, the epicenter of it. Other signs of McAuliffe's bromance with brew. This year, he signed a bill that doubles the number of banquet licenses a brewery or winery can obtain in a year, which allows it to participate in more festivals. More festivals equal more tourism dollars. He announced that Shenandoah Beer Works Trail, a route of 14 breweries in the area, received over $22,000 to develop a passport program. He recently approved a $15,000 grant to Stablecraft Brewery in Augusta County and a $50,000 grant to Three Notched in Charlottesville. In exchange, the breweries will add new jobs and buy Virginia-grown products. But his biggest brew coup by far has been to entice four major West Coast craft breweries to open East Coast facilities in Virginia, Deschutes, Stone, Green Flash, and Ballast Point all received millions of dollars in public funds. Stone alone received $33 million worth of public money to set up shop in Richmond. Such sweetheart deals are not uncommon, but for native players such as Devil's Backbone, it's been a point of friction with McAuliffe's mission. We have a belief that companies, especially wealthy companies, shouldn't be utilizing taxpayer funding to grow their businesses. You know, we found a business solution to grow our business. Steve Crandall is the CEO of Devil's Backbone, and he's referring to the 2016 sale of his company to Anheuser-Busch InBev, a move that ended the brand's craft status but allowed the company to keep growing amid stiffening competition from out of state. He says he's beer positive and has nothing against the out-of-state breweries. His COO, Hayes Humphrey, says the problem isn't so much the public funding itself, but rather whom the government decides it goes to and how much. 
there have been a few incentive packages offered to a few craft breweries around the state. But when you compare that to the the packages that have been put together for for out of state craft brewers to come open a second facility here, you know, there's no comparison between those dollars. McAuliffe's big push into craft is happening, ironically, in a cooling market. People aren't knocking back as much craft as they were a few years ago. Production volume dropped to 5% from 8% last year, which itself was down from 18% growth in 2013, according to the industry journal Craft Brewing Business. McAuliffe's big bet on craft may actually backfire. Or is it backwash? A clue, Stone laid off 5% of its workforce last year, according to one industry observer. It set off shockwaves in the entire industry. That great heyday of growth is slowing significantly. It's more difficult for these little craft breweries to get out and make a decent living. Nathan and Irma Bailey are still going to try. What are we looking at? So this is our uh, brewing system right here. They launched Great Valley Farm Brewery in Rockbridge County just one year ago, specializing in Belgian beer. They make a living selling pints from their taproom, offering scenic views of the southern end of the county. We've got a a lot of entrepreneurial spirit, you know, my wife and I, and uh, we just thought, you know, we can can do this and, uh, you know, make a quality product. And, you know, we've got a beautiful location here, so we wanted to kind of share that with everybody. To set himself apart, he's growing grapes as well and hired a 25-year vintner veteran to help him make wine. Why? Remember the magic word, diversify, because not everyone likes beer. For WMRA News, I'm Jesse Nadler. Saturday marks the 21st annual Harrisonburg International Festival. In past years, the festival included Aztec dancing as part of the celebration of the city's cultural and language diversity. The dancers are led by a Harrisonburg couple working to keep alive the Aztec traditions in their Mexican roots. As WMRA's Christopher Clymer-Kurtz reports from this story from last September. If you've seen the Aztec dancing in past years at the International Festival, you know it's a real treat. The group is led by Miguel Muniz. His passion for Aztec dance has spawned a number of groups across the country, from Philadelphia to New York City to Marshall, Texas, but it started in Mexico City when he was 11. It was 1991, and that July there was to be a total solar eclipse. He saw a big group getting ready. I was fascinated. Their customs, the feathers, the drums. I start learning the dance, a little bit of philosophy, history, language. He later officially joined the group, and then in 2000 came to New York City to work, where his aunt connected him with a church interested in learning cultural dance. It happened to be the church that Anaid Cordova attended. Her parents had come to New York from the same area of Mexico as Miguel's maternal family is from. I mean, I don't know that I want to speak for all first-generation kids, but I felt connected. But at the same time, it was, I mean, it's hard, right? You're living here, and yet you're not necessarily fully American or, yeah. So meeting Miguel and and learning about traditions and different ways to be proud of who you are and to be able to participate in that culture and to express it more fully was very empowering. Miguel didn't know it when he started, but he wasn't the first in his own family to do Aztec dance. Many years later, I learned that my great-grandmother, Manuela Rodriguez, she was a dancer, a traditional dancer. She was an indigenous woman, and so that was not 
at that time, I don't think, something necessarily to be very proud of. Nobody else continued with it, and nobody really talked about it. Right. In our family, it, it was only her and now me. Now, Anaid and Miguel have their own family. They have lived in Harrisonburg since 2004 and attend a Mennonite church. In many ways, Anaid said, they're pretty normal. 17-year-old Lizette is in her second year as co-drum major at Harrisonburg High School. Leilani, 13, is a runner and does track, is also in band, and works backstage for school musicals. 12-year-old Emiliano loves soccer, and their youngest, 4-year-old Miguel Angel, just wants a snack. After dinner, Miguel. But Anaid and Miguel hope also to raise their kids with a love for their Aztec culture. At their ceremonies and dances, they require them to participate at least a little, and Anaid said that most of the time the kids are glad they did it. Emiliano agrees. It's really cool, like, something unique that you can say about yourself that not most people can say. Lizette said that the Aztec dancing has helped shape her as a drum major. Dancing, it's a way for us to channel all of our emotions and kind of be in touch with the earth and nature. Being a drum major and conducting, it helps me feel connected to the music and be connected to all of the musicians who are on the field. That idea of connection through dance is key. For many of us Aztec dancers, this is kind of like our religion. But I don't like to use religion. It's more the way we connect with Mother Earth and the sun, the stars. All our dances are close to nature. We don't have an image of God. We call uh, that idea Moyokoyani, which means that that has no beginning or ending. Everything is connected. Everything is one creation. So when we dance, we pray with our feet. What people see at the International Festival is really just a taste of the dancing and ceremonies that can last for hours. Sometimes we keep going into nine, ten hours, and that's for dance. We have another ceremony that we call Belación, which starts when the sunset and ends when the sunrise, and then you start with the dance. Even if the performance time slots at the International Festival are short, it is a place that Miguel and Anaid can show to an appreciative community a deeply meaningful part of their past and present. We bring our identity as Mexicans, native Mexicans, and our dignity. I feel like the, the International Festival is a, it's a place where anybody can go with their dignity. This weekend, Aztec dancers from at least Pennsylvania and New York will join Miguel and likely more of the family in opening the International Festival at noon Saturday. Later, they'll have their own private ceremony. For WMRA News, I'm Christopher Kleinrickers. This year's festival coming up on Saturday will feature dancing and music from traditions ranging from Mexican to Filipino to Ukrainian and Kurdish. The website is always available for you to learn more about all the stories you hear every day. It's WMRA.org. And please, while there, support everything you love on WMRA so we can keep bringing it to you in the coming year. Pay it forward with your pledge at WMRA.org. And thanks. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director and morning edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.